Okay, as we turn to God's word, let's just uh, bow our hearts one more time. Father, we just come before you now as we prepare to read, to study, to learn from your word. Father, we thank you that your word tells us of itself that it is living and powerful. And the Lord, it is able to divide between that which is fleshly and that which is spiritual. And Father, give us eyes to see these things. Help us to understand. And Lord, help us to learn these valuable lessons from your word as we look at the history and the life of Israel as a nation and see, Lord, how it mirrors and maps our own walk with you. And so, Father, bless this time, Lord. Open our eyes, open our ears. And, Lord, may these things go deep into our heart and that they bring forth fruit for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We have come as far in our study through the Bible as the book of Judges. Now, I'll be honest with you. This is one book of the Bible I wish wasn't there. And I say that because when I read through the book of Judges, I get frustrated. Because I look at the nation of Israel, make a mistake after mistake after mistake. God giving them incredible opportunity, giving them incredible blessing. And then them doing things that just blow those blessings. And they end up in so many problems as a result of their disobedience. And the simple lack of ability to follow God's instruction. But that's not the reason that I wish this book wasn't here. It's because all of those things are a mirror for my life, and I think if you're honest, for your life. And what we see here is something that is, in many ways, the darkest period in Israel's history. Certainly that which we have recorded in Scripture. We know that there's some very difficult times for the nation to come. But it's a mirror. It looks at us. It looks at the fact that we continually disobey, that we continually get things wrong, that we don't walk in the blessing that is there for us. And so I think this book, certainly to me, is a real challenge. And every time I look at Israel messing it up, I see the same things going on in my own life. And I just, I encourage you as we go through this to really take a look in your own lives. And look at the things that, the God, that God is showing you through the lessons that we're going to learn as we go through this lesson, this book this morning. There were those that actually requested, or suggested, should I say, that the book also shouldn't be in Scripture because it's very graphic. Some of the things that we see in the book of Judges are very, uh, well, it's kind of almost uh, X-rated material. Um, things that you wouldn't necessarily expect to find in a holy book. But this is God's word and God is revealing to us things that we need to understand, that we need to know. In terms of the Bible, we've come through the Torah, the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. We've seen God create the world. We've seen God choose a man through whom he will send a saviour to remedy the problem that occurred in the Garden of Eden through the disobedience of man. We've seen that man then um, become a nation. They, Israel went down into Egypt and they left there. Um, they went in as 70 or so individuals. They come out as a nation of somewhere in the region of 2 million. They go to Sinai. God gives them there the laws, what they should do to keep the law, to please God. And then we get the book of Leviticus, which tells us exactly what they should do when they break the law. You see, God already sets up a, a, a provision for the fact that we cannot keep God's rules and laws. And then we see through numbers, further mistakes that they make in Deuteronomy, again, the things reiterated, but the incredible promises that we see that God is faithful. And so we looked last time 
in the book of Joshua. And we're really looking at a period of time now that's all one unit, really. But the historical books of the Bible, there's 12 books in that category. Um, but Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And we'll look, uh, obviously next week we'll go into the book of Ruth, an amazing book. Ruth occurs during the times of the Judges. Um, but Judges really following straight on from the time of Joshua. Now, you'll see different classifications um, of the Judges in Israel. We're going to see that there's actually 14. Now, some would actually argue with that number. Uh, and the reason they do so uh, is because they would also add to this 14 uh, Moses. Um, if you look at the definition that God himself gives of who a, or what a judge is, and it's not in the way that we would look at a, a magistrate or a judge today. Um, typically, a judge in Israel was somebody that spoke on behalf of the Lord, that brought conviction of sin, that caused the hearts of the people to turn back to God. Moses very much falls into that category as well. So some people will add Moses into this time or this period of the judges, and they'll also add Joshua in. So sometimes people will say there's 16. Um, some people will tell you there's 13 judges, and that's because they omit Samuel, because Samuel himself doesn't occur within this book. Samuel's going to be following on from the times of the judges, um, and yet also definitely was a judge of the nation of Israel. Uh, and there are some that will even omit Samuel, and they'll also omit to this individual here, dealt with in chapter 9, Abimelech, uh, who was uh, son of Gideon. Um, so sometimes you'll see uh, the number of judges listed as 12, um, and uh, the, the reasons we'll mention briefly as we pass through in a moment. Um, so that's the, the numbering there, the judges we'll look at, uh, and uh, the details and that are there, which will be in the, the slides, which will be available afterwards. So if we look at uh, the overview of the book, uh, it's going to cover a 450 to 480 year time span following the conquest of Canaan uh, as they settle down in the land. But it's a record of occasional deliverers rather than a succession of governors. It's not a, a system that Israel had placed there to govern the nation, that they had successive judges. God raised up judges at times of national disobedience to bring the people back to him. The author, most people, um, most commentators accept and would agree that Samuel is most likely the author of this book. And probably it was written just prior to the accession to the throne of David. Um, and very much in preparation for David coming to the throne. There's a recurring theme that we see through the book. That we're told there was no king in those days. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's the theme that keeps going through this book. It was everybody with an opinion. And we have so many opinions. Everybody's got their own opinion. And at this time in Israel's history, it was very much uh, the case. Uh, Alexander Tyler, uh, in 1750, spoke of the cycle of nations. And he said that this is the way that things go from observation. He said people start in a situation of bondage in terms of, um, it could be material problems, it could be um, from a, uh, an oppression uh, from some other force or whatever else, um, or even just a spiritual bondage in itself. But that, whichever way that appears, then leads to spiritual faith. People cry out, they realize that there's, this world doesn't have all the answers to all the questions. So they seek some other solution, and that will end up as people search for something beyond the natural uh, and look for a spiritual faith that spiritual faith then leads to great courage that courage then leads to freedom but the freedom then leads to abundance and then that abundance leads to complacency and complacency then leads to apathy and apathy then to dependency and from dependency brings us back to bondage again 
And that was his observation of the way that nations typically go. And we see very much this kind of re- reverberating as we go round and look at the, the, the successive judges uh, in the nation of Israel. So the book of Judges, this is a comment from Chuck Misler. He says, the book of Judges is the book of no king. First Samuel is the book of man's king, who was Saul. And then Second Samuel is the book of God's king, who was David. But he drew drew a very interesting parallel. He said, the world today is living in the book of Judges, because there's no king in Israel. And of course, everybody is doing what seems right in their own eyes. Don't we just see that? Next on the agenda is the world's king, the Antichrist. The one that the world will gratefully and gladly accept. Jared was talking a moment ago about the political landscape and the way that we see this one world government coming together. The Bible's been speaking, addressing this for centuries, for thousands of years now. And we're seeing it unfolding before our eyes. That there will be a world leader that people will embrace and accept. The world's king. And then that will be followed by God's king, who will appear. He will defeat his enemies and establish his kingdom. Jesus Christ, sitting and ruling on the throne of David. The book itself... I'm taking a breakdown from uh, Albert Barnes in his commentary. Uh, consists of three divisions. The first section really is the preface in chapter 1 through to chapter 3. And then really from chapter 3 verse 7 we get the main narrative of the book which takes us right the way through to chapter 16. And then we've got this kind of appendix at the end. And we've got two detailed and detached narratives there. Chapter 17 and then finally in chapter 18 through to 21. Barnes makes a comment, he says, to these may be added the book of Ruth, containing another detached narrative, which uh, anciently was included under the title of Judges, to which book the first verse shows that it properly belongs. So we'll see that next time as we look at the book of Ruth. But Ruth occurs during the times of the Judges. With that said, let's get in and have a look at the, the text itself. So picking up chapter 1, verse 1. Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. Now the first thing to mention here is that the land hadn't been totally conquered. Joshua had done a wonderful work. But if you remember, Joshua in chapter 13 gets to the point, the Lord says, Joshua, you're old and stricken in age, but there's still much to do. Well, at the time that Joshua had died, the still the job hadn't been completed. So now... The people, the nation are asking God, what do we do? And Judah's now nominated as the tribe that's going to go up first and try and deal with the problems. In verse 8 we read, Now the children of Judah had fought against Jerusalem and had taken it, and smitten it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. So Jerusalem, of course, is going to become very significant as we go through the rest of the Old Testament. And the children of Judah, we're told here, had this great victory. But they still didn't completely deal with the problem of the the inhabitants of the land. And we've been looking over recent weeks at those inhabitants, why God had instructed they had to be removed, and why Satan had put them there in the first place. Verse 18, moving on, we read, And Judah took Gaza with the coast thereof, and Ashkelon with the coast thereof, and Ekron with the coast thereof. You may recognize those names as being towns where later the Philistines will be listed as dwelling. Verse 19 says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountains. But then we get a but. Okay? But 
could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. You see, in the flats, they could use their chariots. They became a far more formidable enemy, and Judah struggled. Um, And uh, we could spend a long time talking about why these problems occurred, but let's just move on for now. But then we read, verse 21, And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem. So though Judah had had this victory, they still didn't deal with the problem. Uh, But the Jebusites dwelt dwelt with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. It's not until the time of David that Jerusalem is actually finally conquered. And it came to pass when Israel was strong, that they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly drive them out. One commentator said this, What a terrible moment when we become strong, for it is then we are at our weakest. It is when we are weak and have no confidence in the flesh that we trust the Lord. In our weakness is his strength. That's so true, you know, that Israel here had got to the point of becoming strong. It's just like that cycle we were looking at a moment ago. And people get complacent, complacent about situations. They don't trust God in the same way. Picking up verse 29, we read this problem continues. Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites. And it carries on, verse 30. Neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. And goes on. Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants. And this goes on and on. Verse 33. Neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. And again, the others that are listed there. So Israel ended up with this problem. That they started to form alliances. They allow these nations to dwell in their midst. Exactly what God has said they should not do. In chapter 2 we read there, And an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swore unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Well, what a question from God. When God has brought such a wonderful deliverance and he's told us not to form an alliance with the things of this world, God comes. What would God say if he came into to your home, into your house? You know, if we knew this afternoon Jesus was going to come to our house for lunch with us, what would we have to hide or move or what would we want to get rid of? How differently would we behave, uh, you know, act towards our, our other family members? Here God says to the nation, after all that I've done for you, I've given you this simple path to follow where you will be blessed. But you haven't done the things that I asked. He says, why? Have you done this? Why have you acted in this way? Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. Now, we can read those as simple words. We move on as we study the book. But we need to understand that God means what he says and says what he means. And God said that because they didn't trust God, they didn't do what God had asked them to do, didn't deal with those problems that God had revealed to them that they should deal with, God said that those things would be a problem to them. These nations will be thorns in their sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. Let me uh, pose this to you. There's a little enigma. What does the Golden Heights, Hebron, and the Gaza Strip all have in common? Well, they were the areas where Israel failed to exterminate the Rephaim, these descendants of the giant tribes that God had told them to remove. If we look on a map, it's kind of quite a chilling sight to realize 
that the places where Israel, even to this day, have problems are the places where they failed to deal with the enemy. And I think we need to look at that in our own life. And when God calls us to deal with things in our, in our lives, when God reveals something in our, our life that needs to change and we refuse or we choose not to, we think we can form an alliance, we can build a friendship. We've got to realize that we can't control the flesh. And the Bible speaks much about the appetites of the flesh in our lives. And we've got to see the parallels in these things. But it's a very stark reminder as we look at the, the problems, even to this day, that Israel experienced as a result of their disobedience in this situation. Verse 4 of chapter 2, It came to pass when the angel of the Lord spoke these words unto all the children of Israel, that the people lift, lifted up their voice and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. But it's too little, too late at this point. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being a hundred and ten years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres, in the Mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill Gaash. So Joshua dies. The elders that follow on from Joshua, they'd seen all these wonderful things. They also follow and serve the Lord. But then there's a real problem, because the next generation, we read, And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served Balaam. Just a quick comment there. Balaam, it's a plural form of the word Baal, Baal, uh, however you pronounce it, B-A-A-L. Um, it's a name for many, for many um, pagan gods that we find recorded in, in uh, the Old Testament. Um, very fo- various forms of pagan worship. But principally, the god of storms. And this is why um, Baal, Baal, was associated with Mars, the planet Mars. Uh, it's also why Elijah challenged the priests of Baal for rain and why they ascended to the top uh, of the mountain and so on. So uh, it's very interesting as you look at these things through scripture. We've already talked about um, the planet Mars and some of the interesting uh, conjecture that goes along with that and how it seems to tie in with so many things biblically. Uh, And again, the Romans were frightened of Mars. Uh, Why? We wouldn't even be able to spot it in the night sky for most of us. Um, But there's a lot of interesting conjecture. We'll deal with that maybe some other time. Um, but again, God here says that um, they've disobeyed. They've, they've done evil in the sight of the Lord. They've served Balaam. They forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods, of the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. You know, are we guilty of that? Following the gods of the people that are round about us. You know, we're living in a a foreign land. We're not to make alliances with the world. Friendship with the world, we're told, is enmity towards God. But what alliances do we tolerate? What things do we accept? Interesting, isn't it, that it's just another generation, just one generation on. And so often through scripture we see these things. just kind of brings home the responsibility of parents and grandparents to instruct their children in the ways and the things of God. Because, you know, if you don't do it, the world will. The world is very, very um, acutely aware of the importance of instructing children in their particular views and opinions and doctrines. One very clear evidence of this 
is the fact that already it's happened in America, and in September this year, this government is going to bring in the teaching of evolution to primary school children. Why are they going to do that? They're going to do it because there was a meeting held in Europe, and I've got a friend who's... um, he used to be a computational biologist who used to work for Pfizer's um, and came to our church in deal for many years. He's gone back to America. He's now a lecturer at a university. Um, and he may be aware of a, a conference that was had in Europe. And they decided that they needed to start indoctrinating children younger. It's, it's just scary when we kind of hear things like that. Um, he had transcripts and things of this conference and everything else. And it really is a very scary situation to realize that there are people out there that want to teach our children things that we would never want them to learn themselves and find out. Now, we've talked before, evolution is it's scientifically impossible. It's nonsense. It doesn't work. Even the evolutionists themselves admit this. Michael Gove, in this email debate I had with him, uh, it wasn't actually him personally that was replying, but one of his uh, aides replying with his authority. Basically, when I asked, could you give me one piece of information, the response was pretty much, well, we can't, but we're going to do it anyway. That's the position of the government. They're going to teach these to, to primary school children who are too young to question. Too, too young to say, but is that true? They will just accept it as fact. And then they'll grow up in a world with no rules, no absolutes, where everybody's doing what seems right in their own eyes. So the challenge to us, again, just as this generation arose, we need to be very mindful of our responsibility as parents and, as I say, grandparents. Grandparents, you have such a responsibility. Um, and I praise God for my, for my grand, who just was such a godly influence in my life. Let's carry on. Verse 13. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. Now Ashtaroth uh, is a goddess here. It's the moon goddess of the Phoenicians. Um, Ashtoreth uh, is how the Zidonians would have her. But also Ishtar uh, of the Akkadians and the Assyrians. And it's from Ishtar that we get Easter. That's where the name comes from. It's from this pagan goddess. Um, it, the, the festival of um, Ishtar, or also Astarte for the Greeks, uh, was a pagan festival. And of course what happened was we end up the church in the, about the third century or so. Um, paganism and Christianity get merged. And so we end up with this, this festival at Christmas time, which was a pagan festival, Saturnalia. We end up with Ishtar, this, this worship of this pagan goddess, being merged with the Christian festival. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't enjoy Easter. And of course for us as a church we will celebrate the resurrection of jesus but we need to understand that there are a lot of pagan roots behind a lot of those things and israel here are being told that they forsook god they serve baal worshiping the the planets the sun the moon the stars all these things uh, and asheroth and so on and the anger of the lord was hot against israel and he delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them and he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about, so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. Incredible, uh, these things that we see here. And, you know, this again, this generation arose. They were unwilling um, to uh, help the rest of us people here that were didn't, they didn't get involved in dealing with the problem in the land they were living among these idolaters and they became contaminated you know the tribes were supposed to support and help each other in this clear up operation they didn't the surrounding nations exploited their degeneracy uh, and we see that israel then just failed totally um, 
We see then, as a result of this, is six specific periods of servitude that we find now recorded in the book of Judges. And these weren't just accident, accidental things, as we've just seen. God allowed these things to be brought on Israel as punishments, to chastise them, to bring them back to him. You see, we need to understand that the privileges that we have are not a license to sin. And Israel made that mistake. The pattern... Again, it can be uh, seen that they go from sinning to suffering to repentance to deliverance. And then again, that apathy which leads back to square one once again. Verse 16 is a wonderful word that opens the verse. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges. You see, God is faithful. We read in Lamentations, this I recall to mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. We sing the hymn, but that's where it's from. It's God's word. Great is God's faithfulness. Even though Israel were disobedient, nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them and turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. And when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. And it came to pass that when the judge was dead, that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them, to bow down unto them. They ceased not from their own doings, nor from their stubborn way. One of the things that came up at the conference yesterday was this kind of question about who is your role model. It's interesting in the New Testament, we find that Paul puts himself forward as an example for other people to follow. Now, on one hand, you may think that there's an element of pride in that. But, of course, with Paul, that wasn't wasn't pride. Paul was just living a life separated to God. And he said, follow my example. Question for you this morning. Could you honestly say to anybody else, follow my example? Look at my life. Live the way I live. Serve God the way I serve God. Alternately, on the other side of that, who is your example? Who is it that you're following? Who are you looking to, to give you a godly lead, to look at the way they live their, their lives? You know, it's an interesting question that we need to, to ask. Because God was raising up judges for the nation to be an example, to cause the people to say, that's how I should be living. To be that constant reminder. You know, there are lovely men and women of God, and just being around them, you feel closer to God you just there's a something about them it's the presence of God in their lives you know and it's almost as if they come into your home and it's almost as if the Lord has stepped into your house as well uh, and you know that there's something special and uh, there's a number of people in my life that the Lord has uh, blessed me and allowed me to come into contact with that are very much like that you look at them and they're just such godly people and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he said because that this people hath transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and have not hearkened unto my voice. I will also not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died. That through them I may prove Israel, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein, as their fathers uh, did it uh, or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out uh, hastily, neither delivered he them into the hand of Joshua. 
and obviously those that followed on from Joshua. So these are the six specific times of judgment, if you like, of servitude. This is very fascinating because we, we get there Mesopotamia, the Moabites, Canaanites, Midianites, Amorites and Philistines. Israel spent, because you can see on the, the slide there, the number of years um, in servitude to these. And you can see there the judges that God raised up respectively to deliver them. We'll look at some of them briefly in a moment. But that totals 111 years of servitude through this period of time. Now, just to show you how much God is in complete control of history, just have a look at this. If we look at the time going from Abraham to the time of the Exodus, we've got there a period of 75 years when Abraham moved into the land. We've then got this 430 years that were promised from the the covenant being set up with Abraham, so from that point onwards. Um, giving us this period of time. So there's a total of 505 years, and yet there's 15 years from the point that Ishmael is born up until the point where Isaac is born, where Abraham is in effect out of the covenant. He's doing his own thing, and it's not where God would have had him. So if you deduct that period of time when Abraham was, if you like, in disobedience, 490 years is the total amount of time that we have left. Okay, so what do we do with that? But when we look at the period of time from the Exodus, following directly on from that to the time of the temple, we're given the details in First Kings six, chapter six, chapter two through chapter eight, of the, the the length of time and so on. We find we've actually got a total of six hundred and one years, making that that up that, that period of time. Now, if we deduct during that time the amount of time that Israel were in servitude, which is one hundred eleven years as we've just seen, we're left with. 490 years exactly the same time frame now it's even more interesting because if we take from the uh, the temple when the temple was built to the edict of Artaxerxes uh, which we read in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 1 we've got a period of 560 years if we deduct from that the time of the Babylonian captivity which we know from scripture was 70 years we're also left with a period of 490 years if we then Go from the point that this uh, this king, this pagan king, uh, Artaxerxes Longimonus, um, he signs this covenant, this agreement for Israel uh, to rebuild the city and the walls and the temple and everything else. And Daniel chapter 9 gives us the details of this. And he says, from the going forth of that command up until the Messiah, the prince, there'll be exactly, and we work it out, 490 years to all of these things being completed. The details are given. But from the point of the command up until the Messiah come in, there'll be 483 years. And there's a final period of seven years that is on the end of this, referred to very often as Daniel's 70th week. Now, we know that Israel were blinded, uh, spiritually blinded, because they rejected their Messiah. And as a result, the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles, of which you and I are beneficiaries. So we're in this period of time where Israel are in disobedience. They've rejected their Messiah. But there will come a time that their eyes will be opened again. And this whole period, this 70th week of Daniel, is a very Jewish affair, where all these things uh, revealed in the uh, book of Daniel, chapter 9 and so on, and throughout lots of the prophets of the Old Testament, those things will come to pass. So again, 
All of that period of time adds up to 490 years. Now the amazing thing is that we see that God deals with Israel in these 490 year time frames. And you see that every one of these, God is in complete control. What's interesting is that when we look in Matthew uh, chapter 18 there, Peter says to Jesus, how often should I forgive my brother? You know, being kind of like, you know, should I do it uh, 50 times? Because <laughs> that's basically what he says. What he says is, should I do it 7 times 7? Which is 49. What Peter was saying, should I forgive up until the Jubilee? The, the Jews had this um, every 50th year, all debts would be forgiven. And Peter's asking the question. We, we, the way it's translated in, in some of the modern versions completely misses it. What Peter was asking was, should I forgive up until the time of the Jubilee? Peter's been very noble. I, you know, it's a good thing, isn't it, Jesus? And Jesus said, no, until, the word is very clear, until 70 times 7. Until 490. What was Jesus saying? To forgive up until the kingdom comes. Up until Jesus returns, establishes his throne, and then he'll be on the throne anyway. You know, it wasn't a numerical. Some, some commentaries and some even Bible versions suggest that we should forgive 490 times. Well, if you're keeping count, there's a lot of people that are getting very close to that and somebody's going to get to that 490th time and that's it, you can bop them. That's not what the Bible's saying. It's not that there's a numerical amount of times that you should forgive and then that's it. It's a, a model that we find laid down through Scripture. And uh, this, this pattern is just incredible. Again, just evidence that God is in complete control of history. Let's fly through the rest of this. We're not going to spend huge amounts of time on these things, but we just want to look at some scriptures. In chapter 3, verse 7, we're going to pick up. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord God and served Balaam and the groves. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he sold them into the hand of uh, this gentleman, this uh, Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. The children of Israel served the Cushan uh, Rishathaim eight years. That's our first period there. And then we find that the Lord raises them up a deliverer. This deliverer is Othniel, who's the son of Kenes, who is Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. He deals in this situation. Israel had delivered. And then we're told in verse 11, the land had rest 40 years and then Othniel, the son of Kenneth, dies. But then the same thing. Israel do evil in the sight of the Lord. Judges 3 verse 12. And this time, Eglon, the king of Moab, rises up against them. And Israel uh, put his servitude to them. And we find that they're in this position then, uh, you see verse 14, they serve the king, Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. But the Lord does the same thing. They cry out, Israel cry out to the Lord, and he raises up this man Ehud, this Benjamite, he's a left-handed gentleman. And so he goes to see this king. And the, the text is all there. We're told at the bottom here um, that Eglon was a very fat man. They had obesity problems in Israel as well and the surrounding nations. So they go to see the, he goes to see the king, um, to, to Eglon. They put everybody out. And we find uh, this is uh, uh, detailed for us in quite dramatic fashion. Um, and what happens is that he goes in with his dagger. Everybody's put out of the room and he thrusts his dagger in between his fourth and fifth rib, I believe it is. So much so that the, the dagger goes in so far that the fat then closes up around it and he can't get his dagger back. But he's not particularly bothered about that because mission accomplished. He escapes out the back. Israel delivered once again. And as a result of this... And then we read verse 28, and he said unto to them, um, so is Ehud now leading the nation, follow after me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. This is really significant. Pay, pay attention to this. This is the nation now. All the, the fighting men, those that were able, 
Because there's one individual in this group that we need to make note of. They go now and they go into the area of the Moabites and they went down after him and took the fords of Jordan toward Moab and suffered not a man to pass over. And they slew of Moab at that time about 10,000 men, all lusty, all men of valor, and there escaped not a man. How would you feel about the Moabites after that? You'd feel as if you're on top of them, wouldn't you? That you know, we, We've got this supremacy now. And we read, verse 30, So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest 80 years. Now, it's my contention that during this 80-year time, time frame, there happened to occur in Israel a famine. And there was a particular individual who I believe had gone down as part of this army because he'd have been at the right age. And he'd seen Moab. Moab was quite a nice place. No reason why we can't go there. They're subdued under our hand anyway. So, you know, a Jew going into Moab will be looked upon and respected. And he takes his family there. And that's the background for the book of Ruth, which we'll look at next time. But then we find another judge after him, um, Shamagar, the son of Anath, which slew the Philistines 600 men with an ox goad. And he also delivered Israel. We're not given lots of detail about some of these judges. We go into chapter 4. The same thing we find um, that um, the children of Israel did again, even in the sight of the Lord, when Ehud was dead. And this time they sold into the hand of Jabin, king uh, of Canaan. This is a very interesting situation. Caesarea, he's his captain, his uh, military general, and so on. The Lord raises up Deborah, who's a prophetess and the judge of the nation. And then we need this other character, Barak, who effectively is the military or becomes a military leader. But Barak's too afraid to go on his own and says, I'll only go if you come with me. But eventually they go together, they lead the nation in this attack, and they're victorious. And the details of that are actually quite graphic as you read through the text. We read the hand of the children of Israel prospered and prevailed against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. This is just an interesting point for us to make mention of. See, this was one of the nations that had been left. But that which is left can still be dealt with. You know, it's not too late in your own life. If there are things that have been left, things from the old life, things that were in the land as it were, you know, and maybe we struggle with them, and they've been an enemy, a problem for us. They can still be dealt with, and we see a great example of that here. Well, we get to chapter 5. There's a wonderful song of praise, Deborah and Barak. Um, just bring this song before the Lord. Praise you, the Lord, for the avenging of Israel when the people willingly offered themselves. And verse 31 concludes, So let all thine enemies perish, O Lord, but let them that love him be as the sun when he goes forth in his might, and the land had rest forty years. And this now brings us on to chapter six and one of the most famous of the judges. And we read the children of Israel, same thing, it's a recurring phrase, isn't it? Did evil in the sight of the Lord. And this time God delivers the hand of the Midianites for seven years. Verse three tells us, and it was so uh, so it was that when Israel had sown, the Midianites came up, and the Amalekites and the children of the east even they came up against them and they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth. Why is that significant? Because if you remember back in Deuteronomy 28, God gives this prophecy of what would happen. And in verse 3 he says, The fruit of thy land and thy labours shall a nation which thou knowest not eat up, and thou shalt be only oppressed and crushed alway. So exactly as God had said, we've got nations now coming up on the land of Israel and taking their produce. And we find, verse 7, it came to pass that when the children of Israel cried unto the Midianites, the Lord sent them a prophet. 
And the prophet of Israel says to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage and delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you. See, God is reminding them of all that he's done and drove them out from before you and gave you their land. And said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was an orpha, that pertained to Joash the Abiezrites. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the wine press. You don't normally thresh wheat in a wine press. You do it on the top of a hill so the wind will blow the chaff away. But he's in hiding. And we're told to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. At which point Gideon's looking round to see who else is there. This is incredible. You see, the Lord sees us as we can be, not as we are. I mean, Gideon is hiding. He's not a man of valor at this point. But as I say, God calls the things that are not as though they are. He sees the end from the beginning. And when God looks at you, he sees the completed work in Jesus Christ. He doesn't see you as you are in terms of all your failings. And Gideon had a lot of failings, and God deals with many of those things in his life. Philippians verse 1, 6 tells us, Being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You know, God's not going to give up on you. And what a great comfort that is. Gideon said unto him, Lord, my Lord, if the Lord be with with us, why is all this befallen us? And where are all the miracles that our fathers told us of? Saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. This is incredible because this is just what people do. You see, people question God when they don't know his word. Why does God allow these things? That's exactly what Gideon's doing. Well, why was God allowing it? We've been reading it. Because they'd forsaken him. They'd served other gods. See, people are very quick to blame God for their failures. Do you remember back in Genesis chapter 3? After the situation with the temptation, the fall. Man said, it wasn't my fault, it was the woman. The woman said, it wasn't my fault, it was the snake. See, Adam blames God, saying, you gave me the woman, it's your fault. You see, people are very quick to blame God. And we see it so much in the world, and people who are ignorant of his word. See, Gideon was mindful of Israel's predicament. He knew the problem. And no doubt he, in sincerity, sought the Lord. And he'd wanted God to raise up a deliverer. And effectively, God now comes and says, Okay, Gideon, I've heard your prayer. I'm going to raise up a deliverer. Guess what? It's you. I wonder how he felt at that particular moment. How would we feel at that moment? You know, we pray for God to bring revival. What if God says, I'm going to use you. I'm going to start with you. I'm going to do a work in your life. You know, you get characters like Elijah that step onto the pages of Scripture and change a nation. Just one man. You know, God can use just one man, one woman. And this morning amongst us, there may be people that God will say, I want to use you. You know, do we believe that God can use ordinary people in extraordinary ways. Well, of course, Gideon objects. He says, well, I, I believe you can use other people, effectively, this is what he's saying, but how can you use me? He says, I'm the least of all the tribes in Israel, the least of all the families in that tribe, and I'm the least in my own house. I've got nothing to offer. I've got no previous experience. He's, I'm not the natural choice. Well, to God, he's absolutely the natural choice. Because God says, have I not sent thee? 
You see, when we get to that point of going, I'm totally inadequate for this task, God says, that's why I'm picking you. Because if you thought you could do it, we'd have real problems. But when we get to that place of surrender and say, Lord, I can't do this, God says, good, I just need an empty vessel that I can work through. The Lord said to him, surely I'll be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. It's incredible what uh, Gideon goes, pulls this statue down, this idol. Um, the people of the town get very upset and they want to kill him. And his dad steps in and says, well, you know, why are you fighting for your God? If he's a real God, let him fight for himself. But again, God has said, I'll be with thee. I love this quote from Oswald Chambers. He says, if God is the God we know him to be when we're closest to him, what an impertinence worry is. It's a fantastic quote. Right. Then all the Midianites, the Amalekites, the children of the East gathered together. And they pitched over in the valley of Jezreel. This is a place that you and I also would refer to as Armageddon. The same place, this staging place, this vast valley. And there's a very real threat against Gideon. Well, we get to chapter 7 and God highlights that we've got a numbers problem here. You see, we start off with 32,000. God then, according to the rules you already said, Deuteronomy chapter 20, the first eight verses there, if people are frightened or need to go home, if, if people have just got married, for example, let them go home. So God sends 22,000 of the army home. Gideon's left with just 10,000. They were already outnumbered. It's even worse at this point. Outnumbered 12 to 1. So no doubt Gideon was also fearful, but God... Gives him this confidence. He feared God more than he feared the enemy. And that's really the key. He didn't want to miss what God had for him. He wanted to see the God of miracles. Remember, that's what he'd said. Where are those miracles that I've heard of? He wanted to see God do the same thing. And now he's about to see firsthand how God is going to work in this situation. So the 22,000 are sent home because they were afraid. See, are the ones that God said would be proud and boastful uh, after the victory. Uh, this is this, this group, you know, they get sent home. See, fear and pride, if you like, are two sides of the same coin. Some people say, I don't want to talk about Jesus because of what people might say about me. Well, all that tells us is that you're more concerned about your name, your reputation than his. First John chapter 4, 18 tells us perfect love casts out fear. If we really love the Lord, then we won't be fearful of other people. So God again now divides the army. We get two groups. And uh, those who lap as dogs, they come down to the, the river. So those who are watching, like bringing the water up to their mouths. And then those who get on their knees, if you like, and bury their heads in the water as they're drinking. And Gideon is no doubt thinking, well, if God's going to divide the army, I hope God's not going to say what I think he's going to say. And of course God says exactly that. Verse 7 of chapter 7. The Lord said unto Gideon, by the 300 men the lapped will I save you and deliver the Midianites into thine hand and let the other people go every man unto his place so the people took victuals in their hands and their trumpets and he sent all the rest of Israel every man unto his tent and retained those 300 men and the host of the Midian was beneath him in the valley so again it's an incredible situation the first group had left of their own free will their eyes were on the Midianites and not on God The second group needed to be sent away because they thought they were ready, but they were not. It's interesting, G. Campbell Morgan makes this comment. He says, these were people that spend unnecessary time with necessary things. There's a lot of people in the church that are just like that. It's not that they're not willing to serve, but they just spend too long on things that don't really matter. 
So, with an army of just 300, Gideon is now outnumbered 400 to 1. This is crazy. All self-sufficiency is absolutely gone by this point. Everything's been stripped away, and of course this is what God does, so that he will get the glory. See, either God comes through or there's no tomorrow. And that's the place that God wants to get us. And through scripture we can cite example after example, where God brings people to these kind of places. And God will do it in your life, and God has done it in mine, and will no doubt do it again. Where he brings us to that place, that unless God comes through, there is no tomorrow. You see, we don't have any other options. Now, we know the situation that Gideon told his uh, army, these 300 men, they were to get these pitchers and they were to put these lamps inside them and they were to go out and they were to have a trumpet and so on. And the, the signal, they were to blow the trumpets and they were to smash the pitchers and so on. So, the, and, and what happens is that the Midianites and those in the camp feel they're surrounded. They look up on the hills and all around them there's these lights that are shining. And they're terrified. They don't know there's just 300. They can see 300 lights, but they're assuming that there's a massive army amassed. So what happens is they then turn on each other and end up wiping each other out. The Lord won the battle. But how was the battle won? By light shining from broken vessels. And that's the real key of this particular portion of scripture. So the army was solely dependent upon God. They didn't have any other options. They'd been set apart for God to use. And of course that's the will of God for you and I. The Bible speaks about it as sanctification, being set apart. God just wants us to be broken vessels that his light can shine through. He'll do the rest. Now there's a really interesting kind of conclusion to this as well. Because we have the 22,000 that were fearful and afraid. Those that were focused on the necessary things, but weren't prepared to take that step of faith to trust God. They weren't looking at what was going on around them. And there was just 300 that stepped out in faith. The question is, did any of the 32,000 benefit any less? No. They all benefited. They were all saved. They all benefited from the victory. Israel were now delivered from their enemy. But only the 300 were used of God. Now the question for you and I is, are we going to be of that 300 where God can use us? Everybody benefited, but what a privilege for that 300 to go through eternity knowing that God used them because they were faithful. And they didn't rely on their own ability or strength or anything. Well, in chapter 8 we get some internal family wranglings. Uh, we find that moving on from um, uh, the, the situation we just looked at, um, Ephraim complained they wanted to be part of the situation. Chapter 9 is another sad chapter. Um, we find that Gideon had 70 sons. Then he has another son uh, by, a, by a concubine. And that one son is this Abimelech who then becomes, effectively some see it as the next judge. He killed 69 of the sons of uh, Gideon. Uh, eventually the one surviving son uh, kind of raises up um, groundswell of uh, opinion against him and it's a messy situation. Um, but that's a, you can read that as you go through your Bible uh, and study it. Just picking up then just chapter 10. After Abimelech, this that individual we just mentioned, there arose to defend Israel Tola, uh, the son of Pua, son of uh, Dodo, man of Issachar, and he told that he dwelt in Ephraim. He judged Israel twenty-three years and died, was buried. And after him arose Jair, a Gileadite, and judged Israel twenty-two years. So again, these individuals uh, that were being told of there in chapter ten. So more judges uh, that are raised up here. As we go to chapter eleven. 
we get to this interesting character, Jephthah. Now, Jephthah was again a bit of an outcast. Uh, We're told that he was the son of a harlot. His brethren rejected him. He was forced to flee. But then Israel get into a bit of a pickle, and they send for him to come and help them. Um, And the situation is quite interesting. Um, Because verse 30, we read that Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord. Basically, he said, well, let's just read, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, then it shall be that whatsoever comes forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, the situation is, is his daughter is the first one to come out of the house. And some commentators and some people have a real problem thinking that that this individual, this judge of Israel, who vows a vow to the Lord, that whatever comes out of my house will be offered to the Lord or offered up as a burnt offering, they think, and you'll find that commentators will even tell you this, that what Jephthah does is offer his daughter as a burnt sacrifice. I do not believe that for a second. And actually, the word that we have translated here as and, can legitimately, if you look at the Hebrew text, and there's lots of tools online, you can check this if you want, can equally be translated as or. And in some cases you'll find it translated and, some translated as or. Depends on the context. What this is saying is that Jephthah is vowing a vow to the Lord, that if God delivers the Ammonites, then it shall be that whatsoever comes forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's. Or, I will offer it up for a burnt offering. If it had been an animal, it would have been offered as a burnt offering. But what he, Jephthah does is offer his daughter for the service of the Lord. And I believe we're told that she spends three months bewailing her virginity, the fact that she's not going to get married. You know what? If she was going to be put to death, I think that wouldn't be the major concern of her life. What was happening is she was being offered to the Lord in just the way that Samuel was being offered to the Lord, to serve the Lord at Shiloh, at the tabernacle, in service to God. And I believe that's exactly what we're seeing there. So I'll let you look at that, study it uh, if you want to uh, a bit further. But that's what I think we're seeing very clearly in that situation. Well, chapter 12, the men of Ephraim gather themselves together. um, And they say to Jethro, uh, again, this is, why did you go out and and fight and not let us get involved? Jethro reminds them and says, uh, well, you had the opportunity, you didn't. I think it's interesting because you find even in the church today there are people that don't really have any commitment, but they want the reward. It's very much one of those situations that we have uh, mentioned for us there. Chapter 13 is where we are introduced to probably one of the most famous judges that we know of. Um, And we're told the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they're delivered into the Philistines for 40 years. And what God does then... We dealt with this man, a certain man of Zorah, the family of the Danites, Manoah, uh, and his wife was barren. Now, we're told that what happens is that this uh, angel appears to them, the angel of the Lord, uh, which again seems to be God incarnate that comes to them, uh, pre-incarnation um, uh, version of uh, appearance of Jesus, and tells them that they're going to bear a son, but this son is going to be separated to God for his life. And he says, don't allow him to drink strong wine or anything unclean, his hairs to grow and so on. No razor should come upon his head. Do in Nazarite, this law that we've seen previously laid down. Uh, and he would deliver Israel. And in fact, notice what we're told. He shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. The one that concluded that work was Samuel. Samuel completed this task. 
And Manoah said, and bear in mind, they're trying to have children. They've not been able to have children. He says, now let thy words come to pass. How shall we order the child and how shall we do unto him? Now, that's not a case of, you know, you can almost one of the angels saying, no, you don't have to order the child. <laughs> this isn't something you get online. Um, no, no. It's not saying, how do you order the child? It's not a, uh, that type of thing. This is, how do we instruct? I think there's a lesson, actually, we can take from that. They're saying, how should we instruct our children so that they may bring glory to God? Great question to ask. Great prayer to pray. You know, and of course, the New Testament tells us that we should bring them up in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. You know, from childhood we should teach them scripture. Of course, we find that Timothy was in that situation, as we mentioned earlier. His mother, his grandmother, responsible in teaching him scripture from a child. Good question, though. How should we instruct our children? It's a question we need to go to the Lord and allow the Lord to guide us in those things. So, the woman bears a son. Of course, we know that this individual is Samson. And Samson then delivers... Israel, on a number of occasions and so on. The secret of Samson's strength, though, wasn't that he had long hair. That was part of the vow, but the fact was he was full of the Spirit of the Lord. When he acts in disobedience and reveals the situation to Delilah, who obviously uh, we then read about, um, well, first of all, he has a, a wife, and uh, God uses that as a, another occasion for deliverance. But eventually, we get into chapter 15 onwards, and that's when Delilah comes onto the scene. We're told at that point that verse 20 of chapter 15, he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. And so then we get to the situation, as I say, with Delilah. She kind of nags him so much that he would tell her the secret of his strength. And he does. And because his hair is cut and he breaks this vow, it wasn't because his hair was cut. There's nothing supernatural about the hair. But it was because he'd broken this vow to the Lord and the Lord's spirit left him. But we know, of course, that he's in prison. His eyes are put out. But eventually, at the end, uh, he's brought out and the Philistines want to make uh, fun of him. And uh, he comes down to their temple, he pushes the pillars down, and uh, over 5,000 of the Philistines die. Uh, and it's a really sore uh, thing for them, because that's something that we'll see uh, as we get into Samuel that becomes a problem. Judges 17, <laughs> we were told of this man, Micah. Um, from Mount Ephraim. We told in those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. We then find that another young man uh, from um, uh, who's living amongst Judah comes along. who's a Levite, and he comes and stays with him there. And Micah is very excited because he's got this Levite, and he makes this, this strange comment. Micah says, Now know I that the Lord will do me good, seeing I have a Levite to my priest. Wow. You know, there's a great song by Stephen Curtis Chapman, and he says, you know, we've got a necklace, we've got a cheek, a keychain, you know, Christian symbols and things, fridge magnets, welcome mats to greet people as they come into our house. You know, we've got Christian plaques. You know, we might have the outline of a fish on our car. Well, just like this individual, you know, we might attend church regularly. Well, Mike is saying, well, I've got a priest. I'm okay now. You know, those things are all well and good. But the real question is, what is going on inside our lives? It's not all the paraphernalia. It's not the having the priest. It was what was going on in his heart that was the issue. And that's where God is concerned. Lots of lessons we can learn. And we'll talk more on Thursday as we go through some of these things in more detail. Just we kind of draw to a close. There's a, a situation we read in chapter 18. There was no king in Israel in those days. And the tribe of Danites sought them in inheritance. Do you remember we talked about this last time? God had given them that which was to be their inheritance. It wasn't enough, they said. They wanted more. 
And the strange thing is, we're told here that they hadn't possessed all that God had given them. So many Christians don't possess all the blessings that God has for them. And they go off seeking something else. They're not content with their lot. Joshua 19.47 we read, And the coasts of the children of Dan went out too little for them. And when you look on a map, you find that this was what God had given them. But they didn't possess all their inheritance. They didn't take that which the Lord had given them. They end up wanting this. Probably this is actually the smallest portion of real estate that any of the tribes have. And that was what they wanted. That was that extra bit for them. As a result of this, they are led into idolatry. Um, because of the surrounding nations, down up north becomes the first place uh, the idolatry springs up in the nation. You know, when we don't accept that which God has given us, when we want something other than that, then it will always lead us into idolatry. So we then get to these little bits at the end now of the book, um, as we mentioned, in chapter 19, really through to the end, this horrible situation. Um, we're told here of this uh, Levite sojourning on the sides of Mount Ephraim. He took a concubine out of Bethlehem, Judah. But his, we're told his concubine played the, heart, played the whore against him, went away from him unto her father's house to Bethlehem, Judah, and was there four whole months. Well, he goes to come and find her, and then eventually they leave, and they, they set on their way. And uh, they come to this town in the area of the tribe of Benjamin. And we're told in the old man, this, this individual that greets him, says, Peace be with thee, howsoever let all thy wants lay upon me, only lodge not in the street. So he brought him into his house and gave him, we're told, provender for the donkeys, the cows, everything, everything he needed he provided. And he said, I don't want you to stay out, come and dwell in my house tonight. But then we're told, verse 22, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, certain sons of Belial, beset the house round about and beat the door and spoke to the master. And basically they wanted to bring out this man that had come so that we're told that they may know him. And they weren't wanting a conversation with him. Um, this was uh, a carnal relationship that they were seeking. And it's a horrible, sordid situation. It, we end up with this chap's daughter and this concubine being given over to these men. And this horrible, vile situation occurs uh, where they're raped. And as a result of this, uh, this man's concubine dies. He's so incensed that he then cuts her up into 12 pieces and sends her to the 12 tribes of Israel. And that provides, produces an incredible reaction. The nation then come against Bethlehem Judah to try and stamp out this iniquity. And again, Israel requests that Benjamin would give up the culprits. Benjamin refused. They armed themselves. And then Israel go to war against Benjamin. The net result is that Benjamin as a tribe are almost wiped out. And let me just take you through to uh, the closing scriptures in chapter 21. Um, Israel uh, uh, lamenting at this point because they realize, as verse 3 of 21 says, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel that there should be today one tribe lacking? So they set about this plan of where are we going to find women from? Um, and they asked the question, who is it that hasn't helped? Um, who is it that didn't get involved here and so on? And they realized that nobody from this place, Jabesh Gilead, had been involved. So what they do, they go and attack them, they kill the men and so on. And they bring out just 400 ladies that have not been married, not um, had any intimate relationship. Um, and they give them as wives to the children of Benjamin. Now, the reason I'm just sort of mentioning this because it's just one of these little details you find. But you understand when you get to the book of Samuel why this is important. Because King Saul comes from this area. 
And Jabesh Gilead, you're going to find, are one of the, or, uh, the area that become uh, attacked uh, by another enemy of Israel. And that is the first time King Saul steps into the fray. And that's when he effectively takes on the, the throne as king and regains the respect of the nation. Um, and he'll talk about the fact anybody that doesn't join with us well, he talks about, again, taking their cattle and livelihood and things and cutting it into pieces and so on. So very similar ideas and thoughts as we carry through. Um, and uh, that brings us then to the end. And the concluding verse just tells us, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And as I said at the start, that book is quite a difficult book. There's lots of things in there that people struggle with. But it's a mirror. It's looking at our own hearts, the way that we so frequently disobey God and we don't enter into the blessings that he's got for us. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you that it teaches us lessons that sometimes we'd rather not be taught. But Lord, we do pray that we will be open to you and allow your Holy Spirit to work in our lives. Father, so many things that your word teaches us of how we should be. Lord, the dangers of disobedience, the foolishness of disobedience. And so, Father, we pray that as a body of believers here, we would be bold enough to step forward for you, to live lives for you. And Lord, we want to be like those 300 that serve with Gideon, broken vessels through whom your light can shine through. So, Lord, do a work in us, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.